Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And happy Monday. How are you doing today? It's a beautiful day here in Portland, Oregon. Louise and I had a real nice walk in this morning. There is so much in the news. Donald Trump, but I want to start out. <laughs> Donald Trump. Uh, it's like a tick, right? Um, like he fastens himself on the Hunter body politic and sucks the blood out. I wanted to talk about David Duke. Duke ran for governor of Louisiana. And in his first race, he won 55%, excuse me, 60% of the white vote when he ran for the U.S. Senate from Louisiana. He won 60% of the white vote. He lost overall because there's a substantial black vote in Louisiana, and they they knew who he was. But he got 60% of the white vote. So uh, Tim Tim Wise became the assistant director of an anti-David Duke political action committee. Um, You know, back in the day, this was 1991. In 1990, he ran for the Senate in 1990, and he ran for the governorship in 91. And he said when when he ran the 1990 campaign against David Duke, the Democratic Party consultants who came in said, don't talk about David Duke being a racist. Everybody knows he's a racist. Instead, talk about, uh, you know, issues, right? Talk and, and, and talk about the fact that David Duke, uh, you know, got out of going to Vietnam and uh, that he doesn't and then he's been he's been charged by the government with not paying his taxes. Right. In other words, characterize him as as, you know, a bad politician, essentially. And in fact, uh, to quote Tim Wise, he says we shouldn't make He said they told us that we shouldn't make a big deal out of his contemporary racist appeals, per se, because lots of voters agree with those appeals. They even encouraged us to talk about utterly superfluous stuff like Duke paying his taxes late or Duke avoiding service in Vietnam, or Duke writing a sex manual under a female pseudonym. Yeah, he did that. And he says, sadly, what, you know, doing, running a campaign like this ended up normalizing Duke as a regular candidate. You know, attacking his uh, generic character or his bill-paying habits or his inadequate plan for job creation, any of those things made David Duke seem like he was just another Republican candidate for office. And when the Democrats ran a campaign against him in 1990, uh, against him running for the United States Senate, even though David Duke was a Nazi, even though he was a racist, even though he was a former grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, they didn't talk about that. 
And, and frankly, as Tim Weiss points out, the people who were voting for David Duke were not voting because they thought he had a great jobs program or they liked his tax policy or they thought that his support of term limits was a good, a good idea. And the people who voted against him didn't vote against him because he, he was a chicken hawk who didn't show up in Vietnam or he was late in paying his taxes or he wrote a sex manual under a woman's name. None of that happened. What happened was the people, by and large, who voted for David Duke voted for him because they were white racists. And the people, by and large, who voted against David Tuke were voting against him because they knew he was a racist and they hated his racism. I mean, that was the core of it. So Tim Wise notes that in the governor's race, a year later, when David Duke ran for governor, he says, we dispensed with all that BS. We talked about Duke's ongoing Nazism and the moral, practical evil of his racist appeals. We discussed how that moral evil would have real-world consequences, driving tourists and businesses away from Louisiana, things like that. But mostly we said that his racism was wrong. It's not who we want to be. It's not who we are. Now, he, he asked the question, you know, he says, did this flip any of David Duke's voters? No. No, it didn't. In fact, more people turned out to vote for David Duke. 65,000 people, additional people, in the 1991 race showed up to vote for David Duke than voted in 1990 for him. So David Duke actually got more votes. But on the left, massively more people turned out. They, he says just in one day, they registered 28,000 people. His white share of the vote went from 60% down to 55%. And his, his uh, overall share of the vote went from 44% down to 39%. In other words, you know, he says Duke retained 94% of the folks he got first time out. You're not going to get ra racists to stop being racists. And by pointing out that Trump is, you know, here's the lesson for 2020. By pointing out that Trump is a racist, you're, you know, that, that strategy, while it's not going to cause the racists to say, oh, gee, I think I won't vote for Trump. In fact, it may even cause some of the racists to turn out to vote for Trump who might not have otherwise done so. What it does do is it mobilizes the anti-racist, anti-fascist base. These people never voted for Trump's policies. They voted for his bigotry. So Tim Wise says, I would say crafting an argument that this is an existential crisis for the nation. Trump's bigotry, his racism. This, he says, make it about Trump's bigotry and who we want to be as a country. He says, I know for a fact that this message, that Trumpism is a threat to everything we care about and love about this country, that message is what will inspire the Democratic base to come out and vote. And that is what this election is about. And if we focus too much on wonky, look how much I've thought about th this stuff, it's not going to move the needle in 2020. It is important to have policy. It's, it's very important to have good policy. And we've got a bunch of candidates who are, you know, really, you know, doubling and tripling down on that. Elizabeth Warren probably at the top of that pile. But he says, we need to stop approaching elections like a damn debate team. He's no genius. And if you downplay his racism, you normalize him. If you make this about policy, you normalize him. He is a racist. He is a white nationalist. He is an authoritarian. He and his cult are a threat to the future of the nation and the world because of their hate. And that's where we need to be focusing our attention and energy. So what do you think? I, I think that Tim Wise has a, a, an absolutely cogent, spot-on point of view. And the caller during the last break said, you know, the, uh, this is already, I mean, they're, they're actually, to go beyond that, they're already accusing the left of being filled with hate, right? 
I mean, Ted Cruz is saying Antifa. Oh, they're they're hateful. We have to call them terrorists. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. So the right, in addition to peddling racism and xenophobia, now they're now they're peddling. Oh, the left is a bunch of racists and xenophobes. It's nuts. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. Now here's the podcast. Well, sort of and sort of not. You know, pot has caused a lot of people to become conscious, legal pot, you know, has caused a lot of people to become conscious about CBD oil. But you can get CBD oil without getting it from marijuana. You can get it from hemp. And then it doesn't get you high. Well, CBD oil doesn't get you high anyway, but this doesn't get you high. But it does have the extraordinary, potent, pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties that CBD is so famous for. And it's non-toxic. I, the best one out there that I've found is New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. I love it. Louise and I both use this. It's N-U Leaf. New is spelled N-U. New Leaf Naturals uh, is, is the website, .com. And uh, it's non-intoxicating. It's great stuff. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. It's the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic. It's highly concentrated. Contains no additional additives. It's grown in the United States. The only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form and legal. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-LeafNaturals.com. And you can get 30% off and free shipping in the U.S., when you use the code TOM, spell T-H-O-M, go to NULeafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafnaturals.com. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Settlers, the Mythology of the White Proletariat, the True Story of the White Nation by Jay Sakai, published by Morningstar Press in 1989. This is from Chapter 2, The Foundations of Settler Life. The life of European settlers and the class structure of their society was abnormal because it was dependent upon a foundation of conquest, genocide, and enslavement. The myth of the self-sufficient white settler family clearing the wilderness and supporting themselves through their own initiative and hard labor is a propaganda fabrication. It is the absolute characteristic of settler society to be parasitic, dependent upon the super-exploitation of oppressed peoples for its style of life. Never has Euro-American society completely supported itself. This is the decisive factor in the consciousness of all classes and strata of white society from 1600 to now. Settler society was raised up above the level of backward old Europe by a foundation of conquest. This conquest was a miracle drug for a Europe convulsed with the reaction of decaying feudalism and deadly capitalism. Shot into the veins of the Spanish feudal nation, for instance, the miracle drug of the New World Conquest gave Spain the momentary power to overrun North Africa, Holland, and Italy before her historical incident waned. Like many such fixes for Euro-Americans, this conquest was addicting. It was habit-forming and rapidly indispensable, not only culturally, but in the mechanism of an oppressor society whose lifeblood was new conquest. We'll examine this later in the relationship of settlerism to imperialism. For now, it's enough to see that this conquest is a material act of great magnitude, an economic and social event as important as the emergence of the factory system or the exploitation of petroleum in the Middle East. We stress the obvious here because the Euro-American settlers have always made light of their invasion and occupation, although the conquered territory is the precondition for their whole society. Traditionally, European settler societies throw off the propaganda smoke screens that they didn't really conquer and dispossess other nations. They claim with false modesty that they merely moved into vacant territory. 
So the early English settlers depicted America as empty, a howling wilderness, unsettled, sparsely populated, just waiting with a vacant sign on the door for the first lucky civilization to walk in and claim it. Theodore Roosevelt wrote defensively in 1900, quote, the settler and pioneer have at bottom had justice on their side. This great continent could not have been kept as nothing but a game preserve for squalid savages, end of quote. It is telling that this lie is precisely the same lie put forward by white Afrikaner settlers who claim that South Africa was literally totally uninhabited by any Africans when they arrived from Europe. To universal derision, these European settlers claim to be the only rightful historic inhabitants of South Africa. Or we can hear similar defenses uh, uh, put forward by the European settlers of Israel who claim that much of the Palestinian land and buildings they occupy are rightfully theirs since the Arabs allegedly decided to voluntarily abandon it all during the 1948-49 war. Are these kinds of tales any less preposterous than those put forward by Euro-American settlers? America was spacious and sparsely populated only because the European invaders destroyed whole civilizations and killed off millions of Native Americans to get the land and profits they wanted. We all know that when the English arrived in Virginia, for example, they encountered an urban, village-dwelling society far more skilled than they were in the arts of medicine, agriculture, fishing, and government. This civilization was reflected in a chain of 300 Indian nations and peoples stretching from the Arctic Circle to the tip of South America, many of whom had highly developed societies. There was, in fact, a greater population in these Indian nations in, 19, in 1492 than in all of Western Europe. Recent scholarly estimates indicate that at the time of Columbus, there were 100 million Indians in the, in the hemisphere. 10 million in North America, 25 million in Central Mexico, and an additional 65 million elsewhere in Central and South America. These numbers have long been concealed since they give rise to the logical question of what happened to this great mass of people. The European invaders, Spanish, Dutch, English, Portuguese, and French, simply killed off millions and millions to, dis to safeguard their conquest of the land and provide the disposable slave labor they need needed to launch their new world. Conservative Western historical estimates show that the Spanish reduced, in quotes, the Indian population of their colonies from some 50 million to only 4 million by the end of the 17th century. And from the 10 million Indians who once inhabited North America, after four centuries of settler invasion and rule, there were in 1900 perhaps two to 300,000 surviving descendants in the United States. This was the very substantial down payment towards the continuing blood price that third world nations have to pay to sustain the Euro-American way of life. So when we hear that the settlers pushed out the Indians or forced the Indians to leave their traditional hunting grounds, we know that these are, not, that these are just code phrases to refer politely to the most barbaric genocide imaginable. It could well be the greatest crime in all of human history. Only here, Feichmann's and Heinrich Himmler's had names like Benjamin Franklin and Andrew Jackson. The point is that genocide was not an accident not an excess, not the unintended side effect of virile European growth. Genocide was the necessary and deliberate act of the capitalists and their settler shock troops. The book Settlers. Tom Harvin here with you. We've been talking about Donald Trump using basically racism and hate as a campaign strategy. 
And whether that's going to be working for the Republicans or not, it has caused an explosion in hate groups in the United States. We're now over a thousand of them definably. The Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism found that domestic extremists, that's, you know, right-wing terrorists in the United States, killed 50 people last year, 2018, 37 people in 2017, making last year the fourth deadliest for extremist attacks since 1970. One of those most deadly years was 2001 when Muslim extremists, but every single extremist killing in 2018 had a link to right-wing extremism, according to the ADL. The far right accounted for 73% of extremist murders over the 10-year period from 2009 to 2018, compared with 23% by Islamic extremists. Nobody killed by an Antifa person ever. So how does, how does Trump do this? How, do, how does the right say, oh, no, it's those violent lefties out there that you have to worry about. Julio Rivera is with us. He's the editorial director of Reactionary Times, columnist with Newsmax, American Thinker, and townhall.com. ReactionaryTimes.com is the website. You can tweet him at, oh, yeah, it's Julio. And uh, hey, Julio. And by the way, when we had brunch in New York a couple of months ago, you told me you were moving to Europe and you're now there. Real quickly, because we've, you know, we've talked about this on the air as well as off, what do you think of it? And, and what do you think of, I don't, I don't know if they have a national health care system in whatever country you've landed in. Where are you? I actually am in Plovdiv, Bulgaria. That's where we've moved uh, Reactionary Times uh, Global Headquarters to. And I love it. I'm having a great time. Uh, it's a nice, diverse mix of people here. And, you know, it's a, it's a really good time, really friendly. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. That's so. great. So tell me, how does this work? How is it, you know, Ted Cruz has said that Antifa should be labeled a domestic terrorist organization, yeah. which would, first of all, there is no central Antifa, to the best of my knowledge, but it's an abbreviation for anti-fascist. How does this work to the advantage of the Republican? You got Joe Scarborough this morning calling out Trump, saying Ilan Omar never called our nation garbage. It was actually Donald Trump who said that. She called Republican policies garbage. I mean, how does this work for you guys? You know what? First off, the president, I think, has been unfairly victimized here as a result of those tweets that he sent out. I mean, I've read these tweets backwards, forwards, dissected them, you know, eight different ways to Sunday. There was nothing racist about these tweets at all. You've you know, never been told to go back to the country you came from? To stand up. What was that? Go, well, what, why is that racist? If you don't like the United States of America, leave. You well, know, I, I don't understand. I've never understood that concept. He, he was speaking why that, to. Why is that racist? He was speaking to four women of color. I mean, you know, you're Hispanic. Have you not ever, has, has no white person ever said, do you go back to where you came from? Uh, well, you know what? I'm going to tell you like this. This is my theory on that. As a Hispanic, we found this place. I don't want to hear anything from anybody of any color. You know, at the end of the day, we, you know, America was discovered under the Spanish flag. This land is my land. So, I mean, no, if somebody tells me to go back home, I mean, what am I going to do? You know, go back to the United States. I mean, that's where I'm from. My point is, and I think you maybe just made my point, is that that go back home is a racially based slogan i mean it has been forever no it's not necessarily it has nothing to do with race if these if, all right so let's say we had a bunch of european you know i guess you could run for congress and not necessarily have been born in the united states so let's say we had a whole bunch of people here who were from nordic countries and they wanted to install socialist policies That's in the united five, states five percent of congress Trump by the way made are... that same comment about them it wouldn't have been seen as a racist comment but he didn't it's make that same comment about a them comment you got 5% of the U.S. Congress right now are naturalized citizens, 5% of them. And I believe that only two of them are people of color. 
Um, there are, you know, there is a number of, in fact, there was a Republican on, I think it was a CNN a, a couple of days ago, who looks and sounds just like, quote, an American, right, of, you know, white guy, but he said, hey, you know, I came here from Poland when I was a kid. And, you know, when my English wasn't as good in elementary school, people constantly use the taunt, go back where you came from. I mean, this is, this is, this is hurtful stuff. Listen, I mean, go back where you came from applies to anyone who's not a Native American at this point. So, I mean, I just think it's ridiculous. This is the, the outrage mob. People want to be upset about so something. So how does this and work? And everything that Donald Trump has done since June of 2015 has been seen through the context of race. I wrote a column for ReactionaryTimes.com, and I broke down where the true racism is. The true racism is not on the right. It is on the left. We've talked about this, I believe, before. Simone Sanders, who was the communications director for your boy, Bernie Sanders, saying that we don't need Howard Dean and we don't need white men running the Democrat Party. That's racism, but she gets to get away with it because she's a member of the Democrat Party. She would have called Just it the like Democratic the Party, which is the actual name of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, don't, don't try to sidetrack me here. Tom. No, I'm, I know, I know I'm, you're I'm trying to model for the media how to call out people when they, when they mislay, misname the party. I don't call it the Republican Party. I call it the Republican Party. It's the Democratic Party. But, but your point that, that it's the left who are the racists um, is, is, is one that is being echoed far and wide across the right wing, you know, from, from Ted Cruz to Donald Trump to you. And I don't and think should, most people, it should be. I don't think most people are buying it, Julio. I think that most people know racism well, when they see it and they're seeing it in Donald Trump. I, I, I got to make this point. If you just, if you would just allow me this point. Sure. Look what happened in Virginia, Ralph Northam, the, and then you had the attorney general, blackface scandal. Nothing happened to them. Well, it turned you know out we, there was no evidence that it was actually him in the picture. Officials they don't. They're not sure how that picture got on his on his uh, on his uh, page. But but that's one guy. I mean, here Donald Trump called Mexican immigrants no, rapists. Three guys. It was the entire. The, the, Let me give you some quotes from point, Donald Trump. Point. These are actual quotes from Donald Trump. Laziness is a trait in blacks. Immigrants from Haiti all have AIDS. When, now, when, when did he say that? First off, I've never heard him. He say said that, that about three life. years ago. So I hope that you're sourcing that correctly. No, I am sourcing it, and uh, this the, these are these are actual quotes, and you can Google any of these. Yeah, trust me, this is. He said uh, Nigerian immigrants who saw America would never go back to their huts. Um, he said we need less immigration from Africa and more from Norway. He said uh, he spent you know eight years claiming that uh, President Obama wasn't actually a, an American. That and, 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 started by Hillary Clinton, of course. Right. Yeah. He America. lied. He said Obama issued a statement for Kwanzaa but failed to issue one for Christmas, trying to racialize the Obama presidency again. He repeatedly retweets white nationalists. Just did it again two days ago. He said that some of the fine some of the people marching in Charlottesville were very fine people. You know he called Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. He protested. He called protesting black NFL players sons of bitches. He, he, was, he, he wouldn't disavow well, David yeah, Duke. Were, but let me say he referred to a Hispanic Miss Universe as Miss Housekeeping. Okay, listen, let me, first off, let me, let me, let me uh, contradict you on one thing. You said earlier that nobody has died as a result of Antifa uh, you know, uh, source violence. The, the fact of the matter is what, what happened in Charlottesville, and I'm glad you brought up Charlottesville because it made me remember that. 
Michael Signer, the mayor of Charlottesville, instructed his police force to walk opposing groups together and then told them to stand down merely for bad optics. That led to the death of that young woman. So don't ever claim... No, what led to the death of that young woman was... Left-wing or Antifa sort what, of what, what led to the death of that young woman was some, some triggered snowflake right-wing incel who decided he was going to drive his car to a No, it, it was Michael Signer walking the two groups into each other, Tom. That's why there was a fight, because instead of doing the right thing, which was to so, keep the so wait a minute. Let, other, let me get this straight. Excited and agitated it. Julio, what you're, let me get this straight. Are you saying that if, if, uh, if you and I, or somebody representing your side and somebody representing my side, are pushed together and your side decides to kill somebody on my side, that that's the fault of the people oh, who pushed us together, not, not, the, what happened, not the fault not of the people happened, who decided to do the killing? Nationalizing it, Tom. That's no. not what happened. Where was and the intention? Friday night, Friday oh. night in Charlottesville, and I remember that because I covered it extensively for ReactionaryTimes.com. What wound up happening is that Friday night, there were peaceful protests. There was no violence. The next day, once the news got out that, these, um, that they were protesting, taking down these statues, the left mobilized. There are paid protesters. The, the way it always happens paid with these funded type little groups. They show up the next paid day. Paid by whom? It didn't have to result. Who was paying Heather Heyer to be there? Who was paying Heather Heyer to be there? What evidence do you have? I, I don't know. I don't have access to our finances. I'm not saying that every single person there was a paid protester. I don't think anybody on the left was a paid that, protester. That happened. Listen, MoveOn.org took credit for ch- in Chicago a few years ago. But they don't pay protesters. Where a woman got beaten. A woman got beaten by uh, left-wing agitators. Oh, so my God. Like it doesn't happen. Oh, my God. No, I, you know, there, violence happens sometimes. And violence, you know, but, but so far... Thank God, knock wood. So Violence far, no Antifa you know person has killed of? anyone. Like, uh, Ilhan Omar got, there with the way you dismissively got, said that. Listen, a woman got beat in Chicago, and they had to cancel a Trump campaign rally. That's a violation of his free speech, and that woman was violated. She was yeah. physically assaulted. And, and isn't that sad? Um, you're, just, just to close this up, Julio, because we're going to hit a hard break here in a minute, 12 seconds. Um, how is hate a winning strategy for Trump. It's well, that's not his strategy, and that's always why telling people won. to go back where they he came won. from. How's that not hate? More people together, and that then Hillary Clinton could, and her establishment ties, and people were sick and fed up with it, and that's why he won. And he's going to win in 2020 with love, not with hate. And that love is go back to the country you came from. No, it's a love for America. And if you don't love America, sure, you can go where he said it. They can leave. They can come back. They can do whatever they want because this is a free country. And, and you think that's going to be that's that's going to be a winning strategy. OK, uh, you know, I hope hey, you're wrong. I, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if it was 35 I, states. I genuinely hope you're wrong. And I fear you might be right. Julio Rivera, the editorial director of Reactionary Times, columnist with Newsmax, American Thinker and TownHall.com, ReactionaryTimes.com. You can tweet him at, oh, yeah, it's Julio, Y-E-A-H, it's Julio. Julio, thanks for dropping by today. All right. Thank you so much. I'll see you soon. You know, a week or so ago, I was on a long trip on an airplane for hours and had an extra glass of wine sitting there on the plane, and which I probably shouldn't have, because when I woke up the next morning, I, I just, you could see it in the bags under my eyes. And, you know, people have been talking about what do you do about that for years? Hemorrhoid cream, tea bags, 
The fact of the matter is none of them work, but what does work is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow feet, wrinkles under eye or eye, uh, under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See it for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM. Or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. Tom Hartman here with you. And... You know, I think it's important from time to time to have right-wingers on the program so that we can push back and maybe model for the media how to talk to them without, you know, letting them get their BS past us. You know, the question, does fascism work, essentially? Does racism work? I think the answer is fairly obvious that it does. How do you best respond to it, though, is, is a question that is open right now. And on the line with us is Professor Jason Stanley. He's the uh, Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, the author of four books, including most recently, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. We've done a book review of this book. We've, we've played clips of it on the air. His Twitter handle, by the way, is Jason, I-N-T-R-A-T-O-R. And uh, Jason, Professor Stanley, welcome, to the pro- welcome back to the program. You've been here before, have you not? I have twice yeah, before. That Thank was my recollection. Much. Thank you. So, in, in fact, in our previous conversations, we've talked about how the Trump administration is more and more resembling, not only in their actions, classic fascist governments, but in their campaigning, classic fascist campaign strategies. And I don't know if you want to put an exclamation mark on that, but I'm curious your thoughts on how fascism can be defeated. That is a great question. One thing to keep in mind is that we're not distinct from Europe and Germany in having a fascist past. The United States had a fascist past. The America First movement was a fascist movement. This is in the 1930s, as I recall. Uh, The America First movement was a fascist movement. Right. But what is distinctive about us is uh, is that we defeated our fascist movement internally. So, uh, so we have experience defeating our internal demons. You're talking uh, about in the 1930s. In the 1930s. Right. Uh, the America First movement was a fascist movement. Charles Lindbergh, as Bradley Hart has demonstrated in his book, Hitler's American Friend, the Nazis regarded Charles Lindbergh as a potential Hitler. Lindbergh was talking, the, the rhetoric we're hearing today is uh, evocative of Lindbergh's rhetoric, except Lindbergh's rhetoric was even more explicit. Lindbergh talked about uh, how the United States should ally with the Germans and the French and the English to create, to defend the white race against the Mongol hordes and uh, and the Persians and the Arabs. And, but, at, uh, but at that point in time, Professor Stanley, we had a guy in the White House who was quite literally to the left of Bernie Sanders, who was proposing a second, uh, you know, a second bill of rights where the government would guarantee not just your health care and not just your education, but your housing and your job as well. I mean, and, and was outspoken and aggressive and said, yes, they hate me and I welcome their hatred and things like that. Now we've got a guy in the White House who's talking like Lindbergh did. That's right. We have a guy in the White House who's talking like Lindbergh did. Uh, on the other hand, FDR was not some sort of racial justice hero. He, I mean, 
he wasn't so it, it's not like he was he was proposing the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act. Right. So uh, so but we still defeated. So right. But you're putting your finger on it in, in the sense that, you know, we face an emergency in that we have someone who who has vocabulary very similar to the far extreme far right occupying the White House right now. And uh, whether, w- whether or not it's in his, uh, his, his heart, uh, what he's, he's certainly feeding a fascist ideology. Um, yeah. at, but we have to remember when you ask about how to defeat it, we've defeated it before. We're always fighting this in the United States. If you look at the Ku Klux Klan ideology, it is very similar to National Socialist ideology. The idea is that uh, Jews are fomenting a uh, a race war uh, to bring Marxism to the and and communism and socialism to the United States to try to defeat the Christian white ethno state, uh, bringing in immigrants. Uh, so we have that again. We uh, except it's we don't instead of Jews, it's 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 Muslims or elites. Uh, you have this. Uh, you have a very similar structure right now. Islamophobia looks a lot like the anti-Semitism of the past, where the idea uh, Hitler's. Uh, well, we're supposed to focus on solutions, not problems. But right. so we. So one thing to focus on is we've defeated this in the past, and it's part of our American history wrestling with this. Yes, it's a very dramatic situation in that the person fanning the, its flames occupies the White House. Um, so. Uh, I don't think we've quite dealt with that. Uh, well, this is this is my concern. I, I actually, uh, I mean, this is kind of the point of a book I wrote called "The Crash of 2016," which was, you know, the, as you know, as a as an author, the the publishers title your books. So it was an unfortunate title, but it was basically a title about how an economic crash can lead to a fascist takeover of the United States. And, and uh, you know, I, I pointed out that in, 19, in, in the early 1930s, the United States and Germany both equally suffered under the worldwide Great Depression. And we had FDR at the head, and they had Hitler at the head. And I think that more than anything else, both of those men were responding to the economic crisis in their own ways, and you can see, you know, how that how that turned out, and and so I, you know, in, in my book, which was long before Donald Trump came along, I mean, this book was published in 2013 or 2014. I was suggesting that we have to be very very careful as we as we dance closer and closer to an economic precipice that we don't have essentially a Nazi in the White House because we could end up going the way Germany did in 33. Well, I think that. The literature, the, the empirical literature on economic anxiety, sh- strongly suggests that it was it was Trump's it's Trump's uh, it's Trump's supporters uh, aren't aren't you the best predictor of Trump's Trump supporters not having lost a job recently or even having a family member who lost a job. It's uh, what psychologists somewhat misleadingly call racial resentment. Um, he's hitting racial resentment again and again and again. It isn't really, I mean, it's not like black Americans who were completely hammered by the recession turned to fascism. Um, so, uh, so what we have is we have uh, a politician who's not afraid of evoking the worst demons uh, in American history uh, in order to win elections. Uh, and we don't know whether that would have worked in, in previous elections, because uh, Men, po- politicians, although they did evoke racist tropes, including Bill Clinton, Democratic Party, ending welfare as we know it, they did it in a coded way. And Trump is not coded. 
So he's leaning into this fascist past of the United States. Right. And, Tim. Uh, and, and one thing vis-a-vis your point about defeating it, I think American patriotism helps here. Uh, we've defeated this in the past. America is a, is a, is a story of, of facing this, and unlike Europe, defeating it internally. Uh, we have an advantage. The advantage is that a certain kind of ethno-nationalist story doesn't even prima facie make sense in our, in our country. Like, maybe France and Germany and Norway can say to themselves, the citizens there can tell themselves something that's a myth even there, that, that they had a un- the country it has a unified language and a unified uh, religion and a unified past, and everybody comes from this unified past. That story does not make sense in the United States. It doesn't even make, pre- it doesn't make sense in France uh, because there were... Uh, different groups and different and different and there were Catholics and Protestants and uh, but it doesn't even prima facie make sense in the United States. Yeah. So so, so here we've got uh, Tim Wise. This is a guy who ran uh, the Democratic campaigns in Louisiana in 1990 and 1991 when David Duke ran for the Senate in 1990 and then ran for the governorship in 1991. And David Duke carried 60% of the white vote in that 1990 race yeah. uh, in, in Louisiana. And uh, what Tim points out is that in that 1990 race, the Democratic consultants told them, don't go after David Duke as a racist. Instead, go after his policies. And, uh, you know, because if you call him a racist, you're, you're somehow just enabling him or something like that. I don't, the bizarre logic. And so they followed that advice, and, and he got 60% of the way vote. The second time around, they said, to hell with the advice. We're going to just call this guy a Nazi. We're going to call him a racist. We're gonna, that's going to be the core of our advertising. We're not going to be talking about issues this time. We're going to be talking about his racism. And, and it caused uh, his percentage of the white vote to go down to 55%, and it caused the Democrats to win in much larger numbers because it turned out the Democratic base. What are your thoughts on that as strategy and how the Democrats should be moving forward? We have about two minutes till we hit a hard break here. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm in the first instance a scholar of fascism and propaganda uh, and less of strategy. I saw that tweet thread by Tim Weiss. Tim Weiss's point was not that it tapped down the white vote, but that it brought people out to vote who otherwise wouldn't have voted. Um, so, and, and I think that's promising. I think if you look at Michigan, uh, for example, uh, and this is as a non-expert in voting strategy, but if you look at Michigan, you know, again, you're not going to be able to win Trump supporters back. Um, because they've been waiting for this guy all their lives. Oh, since George Wallace. Since George Wallace. Who, by the way, Michigan sent to the Democratic, uh, you know, Michigan was the only state that voted for George Wallace in the primary, right. in the Democratic primary in 60, whatever right. it was. So you're not going to be able to get these voters back. Right. Uh, and, uh, but you are going to be able to turn out younger voters. Uh, you're going to be able to vote, turn out um, voters turned off who uh, might otherwise have been apathetic. The 2016 election had a lot of people not showing up to the polls because there was effective propaganda, essentially, representing Hillary Clinton as, uh, you know, no different or just as corrupt as, as uh, the president. Um, so, so, I, so Tim Weiss is suggesting it's a strategy for bringing people out to the polls. And to me, it sounds right. I mean, as a scholar, my job is to just call fascism when I see it. Right. And that's what I'm doing. And you're seeing fascism in the White House right now and in the GOP. I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing uh, it's a continuum, so it's not an all or nothing thing. Um, we, we, uh, I'm certainly seeing transitions to, uh, to fascism. 
Uh, He hasn't passed an enabling act of stacking the courts, voter suppression. He hasn't overturned democracy, um, but he's put significant impediments uh, in its way. So uh, we're not talking Mussolini or Hitler by any means, um, but uh, we're talking about um, we're talking about fear about immigration and other characteristically fascist, uh, fascist rhetoric, rhetorical tricks. Got it. Professor Jason Stanley, his most recent book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Professor Stanley, thanks for dropping by. Thank you so much. Kenyatta in Redlands, California. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today? Hello, Mr. Hartman. I uh, have been listening very intently to your show this morning, as I do whenever I get a chance to listen to it, which is most of the time. And uh, I've heard lots of things about racism and whether Trump's a racist. And, you know, one of the reasons that this is extremely frustrating to me is because, you know, Socrates says that the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms, Tom. And no one seems to, I, I don't hear anybody defining what is racism. Hmm. You, can have, you can have racism, for instance, black people in America, which I'm a part of that group. We have been the focal point of racism from the very beginning of, uh, of this country. And what is racist to, let's say, someone who is Asian or Mexican, it may, it may, not, it, 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 it may be racist to them, but not necessarily to me and vice versa. For instance, I was on an elevator uh, when I was a very young man, and I'm a fairly tall guy, and uh, I'm, I'm in, on the, you've been downtown Los Angeles, I'm in the Wilshire Business District, I'm going up uh, the, this, uh, you know, in this elevator, and an older white man gets on the elevator, and he says, he looks at me and he says, well, I bet you played basketball. Wow. Now, uh, I'm sure that that guy did not think that that was racist at all. Yeah. I did. So until this starts to get in, that, that's why I think, and I think that it doesn't have a definition for a reason. Because, first of all, if white America, if racism is defined, then we, don't, we no longer have this ambiguous discussion about, well, whether this person is a racist or that a racist. Because, first of all, I find it insulting. And I, I listen, I have white people in my family that I love. This has nothing to do with white people in general, but, but collectively. I, I, I always wince a little bit when I hear one white person say that another one is or isn't racist, because I'm saying to myself, how would you know? Well, I'd, I'd, no. I would look at what they say and what they do. And when you look at what Donald Trump has done throughout his life, you know, advocating for the death penalty for the for the New York Five, even after they were the Central Park Five, even after they were exonerated, um, you know, refusing to rent uh, in his father's house to, you know, or his father's uh, apartments to uh, people of color. I mean, you know, he, he, uh, his, his behavior over the years and the, and the words that are coming out of his mouth, both historically and today, all tell me that this, is, this guy is a racist. Oh, this guy's not only a racist, he's a pig and a racist. Listen, you and I are lockstep on that. I'm yeah. simply saying for the, for the, to the, the greater audience, we need to define terms before we can have substantive discussions. When I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, I think I, I mentioned the Gavalt campaign, G-E-V-A-L-T. Yeah. Hey, you, you see that happening. Can you give me a one-sentence definition of racism, a working definition? I can't. 
Yeah, this, yes, that's the problem. I mean, you know, it's there are people who say racist things who probably are racist. And then there are people who actually enforce racism, right? You know, who, who do racist things. And let me tell you this real quick. Tom. Yeah, go for it. This Gaval campaign with racism, it's going to intensify. And guess what? Jesse Smollett's going to be his uh, Willie Horton ad. Watch. So let's check in with Bob Nay and find out what's going on in the world today's report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. And hey, Congressman, how you doing? I am good, Tom. I want to do two quick stories, and I don't want to run out of time to do a story about Bolton and the United Kingdom okay. and their ship, which I think is a pretty big story if, if you haven't covered it yet. Nobody's covered I have it, not. by the way, except the Guardian. Two quick stories. The majority of Democratic voters view climate change as very important, and I think we knew that Democratic voters you know, viewed it that way, but this CBS News polling was 18,550 registered voters. That's a big poll. Yeah, that's a big that's a large poll. Yeah. Right. And it shows that 78% of Democratic voters in 18 early primary and caucus states view climate change as very important in the 2020 elections. In fact, it ranks second to health care, hmm. uh, which 88% of the respondents called very important. So I just wanted to say that as these early primaries are coming, those individual states also rank very, very high, for example, in New Hampshire and Iowa, and what they think, in fact, it's ranking very high on the climate change. Good news. In fact, some of the states, it's above economics. The other quick story is that the Trump resort is in the mix, and this Trump administration is going to officially hold meeting for the leaders world you know the most powerful economies that's the g7 summit right and it's down to a final few choices and this is absolutely mind-blowing tom after completing the site surveys of possible locations in the trump national Doral, that's the 800 acre golf club in miami is amongst the finalists yeah so trump is looking to make money on hosting world leaders and is the trump administration making the decision because the u.s is hosting the meeting well, they're going to obviously have a large input into it, and the fact it's even on the list right. is amazing in itself. It, it shouldn't really even is. be there. I just wanted to mention it. I just happened to catch this in the side story. Today. Yeah, talk about a violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's right out front. It should, it should not even be in consideration, but it is, unless yeah. he's going to donate it, which yeah. I don't think he will. No, he never has. The story I really wanted to get to, this one is just fascinating, and as facts unravel, I don't know how much it will be carried here by the national corporate media, but, you know, John Bolton, and uh, that's my favorite Trump-beating punching bag for me, too, mm. but, but he's one of the most dangerous men in the world, I believe, and a lot of people that analyze the news, I think, would basically agree with me on this. He acted so surprised, he had a lot of joy, and that was when he heard that the British Royal Marines had seized the Iranian oil tanker. Remember, in the last two weeks they seized it, and of course now their boat has been seized, uh, Britain's boat. And so he tweeted at the time, excellent news, the United Kingdom has detained a super tanker, it was called Grace One, Mm -hmm. laden with Iranian oil bound for Syria, he said, in violation of United European Union sanctions. Now... This reaction, by the way, Tom, as we're starting to find out, is a little bit of a fake reaction. We'll call it fake news because they're accumulating evidence. And by the way, this story is in The Guardian, and it's suggesting that the opposite exactly is true. And Bolton's national security team was directly involved in manufacturing this incident, passing the news over to Britain. And, of course, conservative politicians, they're distracted, they're picking a new prime minister, jockeying for power, preoccupied with Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. 
fell right into the Bolton trap. So, so Bolton's people Bolton's people caused the Brits to think that this tanker yes. should be seized. Is that the deal? Yes. All of the evidence is accumulating, is pointing to that, to the fact where this is now beginning to be public. I caught the story today in The Guardian, beginning to be made public. Now, there were a lot of rumors that I had picked up about four or five days ago that Bolton was behind this, but nobody could really you know, pinpoint it. And now they're amassing evidence that he sent information over and that you know, that boat should be picked up. So the Trump the administration manipulated the British military into seizing an Iranian ship so that yes. we could use that as a pretext to start a war with Iran, basically. Yes, because then Iran, out of anger, came back and seized the British ship right. just you know, recently. Right. And, and now Britain is our ally in this fight against the evil Iranians. Is that the outcome that they're trying to create? And, and are they creating that outcome? Well, they are and they aren't. They've succeeded and now have the Iranians and the British government at each other's throats. But right now, Britain is starting to look towards what Germany is doing. And Germany publicly yesterday said, we're not taking the American approach. We don't like what's going on, but we're going to try some diplomatic resolve with Iran versus what America's going to do. They publicly said that. Right. And they say that England and France will come along with Britain and trying to avoid a war. So with Iran's reaction with the, when the boat was taken, it claimed at the time that Britain had acted illegally because the European Union embargo on oil, Tom, and supplies to Syria applied only to European Union states and not to third countries such as Iran. Hmm. In any case, Tehran said that the destination of the ship was not Syria. And it only was intercepted when it got into the Gibraltar area, they call it, which is under the British rule. Right. So I think John Bolton made a gamble here, and he did this, and then, of course, it angered the Iranians, and they ended up capturing the British ship. So when Bolton gets outed for this in a British newspaper, is this going to cause the Brits to go, whoa, we've been had? Well, I think it will help uh, for them to realize that Bolton is capable of anything. It won't do anything over here yeah. unless people start to drag him into the Congress and make him accountable. Amen. Bob Nay with Talk Media News, author Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. You know, technology is amazing when you think about, you know, how TV has changed, how radios have changed, how computers have, I mean, how, how we've really come from no computers in the, you know, 70s and 80s. I mean, they were giant things to today. Uh, you've got more computing power in your laptop, or excuse me, in your in your phone than uh, the entire moon moon launch did. You know the the moonwalk, and technology now is moving into sleeping. How to have good sleep? How to have peak sleep? How to have deep sleep? And the first step is the Pod by Eight Sleep E I G H T Sleep. It's the Pod is the ultimate sleep machine. The Pod is the first and only high tech bed designed to help you achieve peak mind and body performance. Looking to sleep deeper? The pod dynamically adjusts the temperature on each side of your bed so you're comfortable all night. Want to know your sleep intel? The pod tracks your biometrics while you sleep with no need for wearable technology. Want to sleep better? Enjoy personalized programs and coaching designed by experts guiding you toward true sleep fitness. Because the better you sleep, the better you everything. Try the pod for 100 nights and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. Only at 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom. They've already sold out the first two batches. They're going fast for a limited time. You can get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M.
William in Livonia, Louisiana. Hey, William, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Um, you know, nobody can separate us if we don't allow them. I mean, I, um, I've been a, a full gospel Christian for a while, and I go get my hair cut at, the, um, um, at, at, at a Muslim um, establishment, mm -hmm. and I have um, left the full gospel churches and just visiting the black Baptist churches around me, and it's been a beautiful thing. I mean, um, they always come like and bring me a plate of uh, food or something, and I always just, um, they're glad to see me, and I'm glad to see them. And so I think that if we just reach out to the people, you know, how he's trying to separate us, I think if we, and, and that's a way to to break down that project list that you're always talking yeah. about. So love is what wins rather than hate. I hope you're right, William. I really hope you're right. Thank you for your comments. Stacy in Spokane. Hey, Stacy, what's up? Hello. Hi, you're on the air. Can you hear me? Just fine. Okay. Um... Well, basically, I'm really enjoy. I just want to let you know. Thank you for educating so many people, and including me. And I've been watching your show for many years. Thank you. Anyways, um, I just wanted to actually, when you had the professor on, he has the same attitude that I am. I after seeing that one gentleman before the the Republican type. Um, anyways. Uh, 25%, okay, so I do the math. 25% of his base is racist. And I know last time it was a fluke that he won with the electoral vote, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think too many people are aware. All I know is I have a lot of friends, and 75% um, of them say no way to Trump. And um, I just think that we need to realize that this time around, we're very awake. And the children, actually, the young people are the future, and they are very open-minded, and they're way different. We're not going to, this is scary what's happening, but not, um, But we still have a situation where about half of them aren't even registered to vote. Well, that's not true, because I just signed up a bunch of them. I don't know where they're getting their information, right. but I think it's a lie. I think they're just it's smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And um, I think that by time, you know, the primary happens, there's going to be a, a huge voting thing, just like in 2018. We su they surprised them then. It's going to be two, two times that. No, but how do you deal with, I mean, you know, in, in Georgia, Brian Kemp kicked a million people off the voting rolls. You know, Georgia's Georgia. That's one state. And well, you the know same what? thing happened Last in Michigan. The same thing happened in Wisconsin. The same thing happened in Ohio. The same thing happened in Indiana. Every one of those true, states kicked true. several hundred thousand people off their voting rolls. Yeah, correct. But in 2018, we caught things, and we, re and we did re-elections. And sort that of. is going to happen even double time this time. I'm, I'm just saying that we're at a new era right now. Trump is at one end. He, I'm just saying the people are not racist. Most people are not racist. And Trump is pulling a card that is really old, and it's not for our times. This is 2020, 2020 coming up. Yeah. Uh, people are not that stupid. And you know what? Believe it or not, yes, there are a few people that watch that guy, but most people can't even leave the TV on. Stacy, I hope you're right. I mean, this because, you know, there were a lot of us who were saying the exact same thing in 2016. I hope you're right. I, I, I'm just very concerned you might be wrong. We'll see.
Alyssa. Yes, it's Alyssa, and thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I read this story about what you, your response to the attacks on uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley and Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, and I was just so blown away. I wanted to get you on the air and and number one, say thank you. And number two, I think what you do is inspiring. I think you know maybe it means inspire other people to to do this kind of thing. So tell us about it. Well. I just found myself to be in a pretty unique situation here, I think, that you know, being an owner of a flower shop, um, I get to communicate to people uh, with people in flowers. And so we have a lot of people calling in who are sending flowers to a lot of people in Congress. And um, I just thought, why don't I do it? I want to support these women. I feel you know bad for them that they're essentially being bullied by the president. How silly is that to say? But that's the reality. And I just wanted to show my support and send them a little bit of positivity because I'm sure that they get bombarded with a lot of negativity throughout their day, and it's hard to not focus on that with our current political climate. So this is just a little bit of, you know, happiness and sunshine to send their way. And yeah. we're constantly sell, you know, sending letters to our congressmen and our representatives about what we need and what we want and our concerns. But... How often do we really send thanks? And you yourself, I understand, are, are an immigrant. Yes, yes. I moved here in 1990 with my family on a refugee program. I am Russian. I was born in Uzbekistan during, when I was the former Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And I am a U.S. citizen. I have been for a very long time. And uh, you know, I moved around the country quite a bit. And when I moved here to the Falls Church area, and became a small business owner, I was really welcomed into the community with open arms, and I was just so grateful and felt so privileged and lucky to be here. And just like I would send any member of my community, you know, gratitude and thanks with a bouquet of flowers, I thought, you know, these women are part of my community. D.C., it's it's really small. They're, they're 15 minutes away from me. I drove there myself and hand-delivered the flowers. Like, that's how easy it is wow. to just... Make wow. a nice gesture. So, so uh, I just want to give you a tip of the hat to you, and, and I'm assuming if anybody wants to order flowers for these people, they could also yes, contact you through Galleria, galleriaflorist.biz. Do I have that right? Yes, that's correct. Galleria, G-A-L-L-E-R-I-A, florist, F-L-O-R-I-S-T dot B-I-Z is the, uh, is the website. Alyssa Rabinovich, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, and have a great day. Thanks, you too. Great talking with you. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Colleen in Franklin, North Carolina. Hey, Colleen, what's on your mind today? Racism and Donald Trump. Forty years we've heard it. Him get away with everything. And he continues to do it. And he's such a master with the narrative. I don't say, I guess we can't take control of it. But we've got to be more persistent about getting our narrative out and try to shut him down in some way. I mean, he's completely held the narrative, and like they say, he got so many millions of dollars worth of free publicity the last time. And all I want to say, besides the three generations of racism that we know of in his family, starting with his father, Mr. Trump, and Junior, he knows that. 
We yeah. know that. Oh, it's a matter of the public yeah. record. I mean, his, his father was arrested in a racist riot, a Klan riot, and Donald yeah. Trump, when Donald was working in his father's business, they were busted by the feds in the early 70s for refusing to rent to black people in Queens or wherever it was. It was one of the New York, uh, you know, boroughs. Right. And Junior's been all over the place with, uh, you know, with Breitbart. Yeah. I know the. Uh, oh, Junior! Junior gave a speech in in Philadelphia, Mississippi, at the Neshoba County Fair, the same place where Reagan spoke, just down the road from where Shane, uh, Cheney, Schwarmer, and Goodman were murdered. The civil rights workers that they uh, made the movie Mississippi right. Burning about. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. goes there to give a, a speech to an all-white audience of about thirty thousand people and talk about states' rights, just like Reagan did. He was so proud of himself. I mean, you know, it's it's like yeah, it's oh the, the Trump crime family is is the Trump, uh, you know, yeah. uh, race-baiting family as well. Colleen, I want to get some more callers in here, but thank you. You made your point very well. Ty in Port Haddock, Washington. Hey, Ty, what's up? Here's my point. Young people may not understand what's at stake, so it's up to us as parents to educate them. It's up to us to educate the young because maybe they don't understand what people went through, you know, yeah. to get the right to vote. But my point is, I feel like parents, I, I, I know there was a caller uh, last week, and he was talking about his three adult kids that weren't planning to vote. I, I want to challenge him, you know, and I feel like if he cannot get his kids to vote, given everything that's at stake, with the democracy at stake, then he's failed his children. I'm sorry to say, but I just feel like that. You have to educate your kids to let them know what's at stake. The democracy is at stake right now. We don't have time to play around with games. And, you know, we don't have time for that. That's my that's my issue right now. So I just want to just say that. I mean, I feel like, do you want to continue to live in a democracy or do you want to let it go? I yep. mean, it, it took 200 some odd years to put this thing together. It's not perfect. We all know that. It's not perfect. But it took these years to put it together. Are you willing to let it all go? Right. So you got to get your people out there to vote. And any parent out there that's saying, oh, my kids, they don't, you know, they don't. No, this is not a time to be subtle. We have to educate our kids and let them know what is at stake. Democracy is at stake. If not now, it's, democracy will be over. If we don't handle this thing in 2020, democracy for the United States is over. And I just hope people can understand that. I don't know, I don't know who, who's complacent, who's hanging back. But all I can say, Tom, is if they don't handle it now, 2020, it will be over. Yeah. This, this is my concern, too, Ty, is, is that we may well be looking at the end of the American experiment. Up until Trump, it was a gradual process, but it was getting faster and faster and faster. And now it's, it's a train going down the hill really fast. Ty, thanks a lot for the call. We'll continue with the conversation tomorrow. Same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not something you watch on TV. It's not just something you listen to on the radio, although, you know, hopefully we model some, some good democratic principles on this program, and I mean small d democratic, and big d democratic as well. But it really does need you. Democracy, our country needs you. So please make sure that you register to vote. Tell all your friends about our program. Get the word out. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 